Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It is July 10th. Thank you for joining me. Now, this is a podcast that I almost didn't do. I did one the week before. It's the summer. I'm feeling some level of malaise, and uh, I'm feeling whiny. So what I'd like to do, frankly, is complain in this episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about current events. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the legal world. But what I like to do is, with anything in my life that I enjoy, I like to beat it to death before I stop, whether it's eating the same meal for lunch 600 days in a row, as I once did um, in my office with my friend Mark Furnish when we shared space together, went to the same place every single day for lunch. This Asian, Asian place around the corner of our office until one day he got up in the middle of the meal and projectile vomited in the bathroom, ran back to the table and said, we got to get out of here. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I just projectile vomited in the bathroom and we need to get out before they find out. That was the last time that I went to that restaurant. So something like that at that level has to happen before I'm capable of giving something um, up that I enjoy. So when I bashed Trump on all of these podcasts, I felt you know, well after it was appropriate that it was time to stop and move on to something else. So I'm going to do the same thing about episodes where I can complain. I'll do it probably three or four too many. You'll be begging me to stop in your minds and eventually I'll get the hint. Now, what I'd like to talk about in this episode is, in my mind, the country is getting so much dumber than it ever has been in our history, for real. And I don't think this is hyperbole. And I have real evidence for this claim, as well as my belief when we actually collectively as a country started becoming this stupid. But you can really begin to understand the depths of idiocy in America right now by just reading the news. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the president, the Supreme Court's decision ending affirmative action in college admissions, and of course, When the subject is stupidity, we need to speak about uh, the mayor in the club, Eric Adams, uh, who took some time out from partying uh, until dawn last week to make a complete and utter ass out of himself. And what I like to do is whenever you hear me talk about mayor in the club, I like to have some of the music because it's only right that you can feel, you can feel the groove, you can feel what he feels when he gets up in the morning and his entire day, he's thinking about the club. Now, I think we reached a tipping point the other day. I I was reading the news, a tipping point of stupidity where there was almost a point of no return. We're we're past that point now. I saw the story about the cocaine found inside the White House. Now, every single person on the planet knows that it's Hunter Biden's cocaine. It's not even a question. It's Hunter Biden's cocaine. Every single person knows on the planet. Not only is it insulting that Joe Biden's White House doesn't admit that it's Hunter's, and then look, they can say, look, he, had, he slipped, he slipped, or whatever, what do they call it when the, when the addicts uh, go back on the wagon, or they fall off the wagon. They slip, he had a slip. So he's still a crackhead in his 50s. They could say it. I mean, they could get some juice out of that. They could talk to all the people that, you know, have addictions. They could, you know, appeal to those people. No, no, the lies that they're peddling to cover it up make it so much worse, which is so much more insulting to somebody with a brain inside their heads. First, they found the cocaine in the library where only insiders can even get to in the White House. But then somehow, miraculously, the cocaine was found in an area in the West Wing inhabited by the public. So I guess the bag of cocaine, it grew legs and tip, 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 just walked away to an area where they could blame it on somebody else. Biden's very awful press secretary, the double affirmative action disaster. She's black and she's a lesbian, you know, slow clap. She actually had the gall to get angry at a reporter when asked if she would simply deny that the cocaine belonged to Hunter. She said it was an irresponsible question because the Bidens weren't even in the White House when the cocaine was found. 
which was obviously revealed to be a lie. They were in the White House a week ago Friday on the day that the cocaine was found. It's very easy to prove that. They have logs, they have video, they have reporters. Everybody knows where the Bidens were. And just because the Bidens may have left that day doesn't mean that Hunter didn't leave his cocaine there the night before. You know, he wakes up in the middle of the night. When you got the DTs, you got the shakes, you can't sleep from all that cocaine, you, you tend to walk around. You meander around the the, uh, the White House a bit. Of course, it's Hunter's. I mean, he's a crackhead for, for 30, 40 years now, whatever it is. Of course, it's his. He was shown on the White House balcony video watching the July 4th fireworks. He was all fidgety. Everybody's transfixed, looking at the fireworks into the sky. And this guy's pacing back and forth. He's dancing around. He's wiping his nose. Like, that's what crackheads do. They wipe their nose when they do cocaine. I've seen it. I know it. This is, this is a true fact. I mean, this is what he was doing. He couldn't keep his shit together because he was on cocaine. Finally, he had to dart off of the balcony because he he couldn't sit still and if you look at the video look at his mother's uh, face actually i guess is this his mother jill no no the first one the one that died that's his mother i don't i can't keep these biden straight but she has a look on her face of just like utter disgust when she sees him walk away because she knows what's going on she knows that her son or whatever he is is a crackhead and keep in mind also that the secret service has been around protecting the president and the White House since 1901. That's 122 years. And they've never found illegal drugs in the White House until the time that this crackhead goes to live there. And why did he even, why does he even live there now at all? Well, it was to avoid getting served legal papers from the stripper that he knocked up. For God's sake, the man is in his 50s. He's married now with a new baby. I think he married his wife. He met her uh, five days later. He married her. Can't he find a place to live on his own? He's made tens of millions of dollars in in, uh, ill-gotten gains for money as an unregistered uh, foreign agent. He's selling the Biden name. You can't afford a place to live on your own. You got to live in the White House. You're a crackhead. But crackheads, they have messes that always need to get cleaned up by their families. And the Biden family is no different. They just happen to be running America. As for his decade, decades-long addiction, what kind of stress does this guy have in his life that he needs to do drugs? He's got no job. He gets millions and millions of dollars based on his last name without having to work for it. He knocks up strippers. I mean, it's not exactly a stressful life that could trigger addiction. He's just a loser. He's a freak. He's just a waste of life. And everyone gives him a pass, gets him out of all the trouble that he constantly is making for himself, and that doesn't help him get better when everybody's fixing for him and cleaning up his messes. So not only do we have a president who's suffering, obviously, from severe mental decline due to his very old age, and that's not a knock on Joe Biden. He's 80 years old, man, and he's not looking good. He can barely walk. He walks like a cadaver. He walks like a corpse. He walks like the mummy in any of those movies, like the Abbott and Costello movies. I'm dating myself. He's shuffling around there. That's like he's old. He's really old. And as I said, he's got a, a crackhead son who's committed numerous crimes as an unregistered foreign agent for lobbying that brought him and his, him and his corrupt family tens of millions of dollars. No one seems to care in America. Joe Biden has never had a non-public sector job in his entire adult life. He's been like a senator since he's 30 years old. Why does he have so many homes? Where's the money coming from? Why does he cover for Hunter's crimes over and over? Well, it's obvious because Joe Biden needs Hunter Biden. He needs Hunter to keep making that money for him. He can't do it himself. He's getting paid $400,000 to be president. Even Hunter in his texts in his laptop that has now been revealed to be true. Nobody denies it. He complains about his father reaching into his pocket to take all of his crime proceeds when he was selling access of the family to the Chinese, to foreign actors. Hunter wanted all that money for himself. He felt that he was working hard. He, he actually thinks it was working hard, selling his family's name and access to his father. To him, that's a job. He counts that as hard work, being a grifter, 
That's hard work making all that money, stealing all that money, selling your family's name, selling out the country. Come on, that's hard work for a guy like that who can barely get through the day without snorting 10 lines. He's so proud of his hard work. Now, the cocaine that was found in the library at the White House the day that Hunter was there, and somehow, despite a camera covering every inch of the White House property, of course there's a camera covering every inch. It's the White House. It's our president. They also have the ability to dust the bag for fingerprints. Of course they know who it is. But the White House tells us that they'll probably be unable to determine whose cocaine it is, even though, let's imagine that anthrax was left in the White House, in the same location, a bag of anthrax, all right? Do you, do you really think that by now an arrest wouldn't have been made? All right? I mean, come on. All those January 6th lunatics that were rioting at the Senate, they all had their faces covered. It's been, what, a few years now? You've got online sleuths that are able to just look at the eyes of the people. Forget their what, what their whole face is. They only have their eyes. And they're finding them one after another. The FBI's finding them. They're using all sorts of technology. And they're still arresting people. That's the kind of technology we've got. But a fucking bag of cocaine, a plastic bag inside the White House, they can't figure out whose it is? Are you this stupid? Can you possibly be this stupid? You're not. You're listening to this podcast, so presumably you're not that stupid, right? I mean, come on. The White House will slow roll it and they'll just keep up the lie, just like they slow rolled the existence, the reality of the Hunter laptop before the election in 2020. We've talked about this. Remember the 51 members of the intelligence community, they signed the letter before the election claiming that the laptop was Russian disinformation. It wasn't. The FBI knew it was real at least a year before. They just lied to our faces because this is what America is nowadays. So when you want to consider giving Hunter a break on the cocaine story, remember, the same people that lied to us about the laptop are lying to us about the cocaine now. And remember, he left a laptop behind with all that incredibly humiliating and damaging criminal behavior inside it. He left that behind at a store. Do you think he's not capable of leaving a bag of cocaine in the library by mistake? And he's carrying that giant fucking backpack onto the, uh, what is the, the Air Force 3, whatever it's called, the helicopter. He's 53 years old. Who carries a giant backpack around all the time? He's not 20. He's 53. Nobody walks around with a backpack like that unless you got your stash in there that you can't let anybody uh, see. Somehow he got through every White House security protocol with drugs. Of course he's the only one they don't check. That's how the cocaine got in there. Anybody else, they check, they turn you upside down, they pat you down, they take out the rubber gloves and probably do an anal cavity search. I'm sure he would enjoy that. Ugh. Anyway, in 2016, before the election, that election, Hunter Biden returned a rental car in Arizona. According to a police report, think about this. Hunter's rental that he returned contained a cocaine pipe, a crack pipe his credit cards, his driver's license, his cell phone, a U.S. Secret Service business card, a Delaware Attorney General badge. He never was a Delaware Attorney General. The keys were not put in a drop box, but instead he put them in the car's gas tank compartment. You know, you pop that open and you find where you stick the gas in. He shoved the keys in there. And the small crack pipe that he left in the, in the car was next to a bag of cocaine, a bag of cocaine that he left on the passenger seat. This is what crackheads do. They forget where they leave their shit. And naturally, he got away with that crime as well because he's Hunter Biden. He's so, he's so important. And Joe Biden, remember, never said that the laptop was fake back in 2020. He ignored it and he let others lie for him. Similarly, he's not said a word about the cocaine found in the White House. He hasn't defended Hunter. He hasn't defended him at all. He let others lie for him. Even Hunter hasn't denied that it's his cocaine. Don't you think we, as the American public, who pay for that house, who pay for the salaries, who pay for the Secret Service doing the investigation, who pay for everything, don't you think we deserve some honesty about the cocaine that was found in the White House? And look, if they say it's Hunter's, 
I'd be like, okay, you know, Hunter probably shouldn't be staying in the White House anymore. He's obviously a crackhead. You don't want a crackhead in the seat of power right next to it. I wouldn't suggest prosecuting him for it. The guy's an addict. Stick him away somewhere, wherever they stick people like that. You just disappear him. He comes back in two years. He's got a big scar across his forehead, whatever they got to do to make that brain right. Remember, Hunter Biden, he lied about cocaine multiple times in the past. He got kicked out of the Naval Reserves. Remember? Because he had urine with cocaine in it. He claimed that he had no idea how it got into his system, but naturally he blamed it on two guys from Africa who he claimed he bummed the cigarette from. So he's blaming it on the black people. I guess that's what's famous in America. That's what you do. You know, you don't want to take responsibility, blame it on a black guy. And remember, he only got into the Naval Reserve because he got a waiver due to what? A drug arrest when he was a younger, when he was a teenager, I believe. This is what the guy does. All right. And when his ex-girlfriend, who was also his dead brother's wife, threw out his gun, because she didn't think a crackhead should have a gun. They shouldn't. Uh, he lied and said it was two Mexicans who stole it. He's always blaming a minority. Nice guy. He said in his book that he's been doing cocaine since college, and he's 53 now. Is it asking so much to ask him to simply stop doing cocaine? He's the president's son. Can you go a day without sticking shit up your nose? I don't think it's asking a lot, is it? He's got a lot of privilege. Democrats... Uh, they don't feel that they should have any privilege. Why does this guy, he's got white privilege to the 7,000th degree. Ugh. Now, regarding the Supreme Court's recent decision declaring it unconstitutional, allowing affirmative action to determine college admissions, by the way, as a quick aside, it's going to change nothing. Uh, the left controls colleges, and instead of admitting people based on the color of their skin, now they're going to admit people based on the impact that racism has had on their life. It'll be made very clear in every application. You'll be checking the box. If you don't have to check a box that you're black now, you'll talk about it in your essay. The people that study the applications will know, wink, wink, we've got a black person here, admit them, even though the grades and the, the scores, you don't even have to submit scores anymore because minorities weren't doing well on them. It's going to change nothing. Absolutely nothing. But regarding uh, the Supreme Court's decision outlawing affirmative action in college admissions, Joe Biden just said, this like a week ago, that it was unthinkable that the Supreme Court would do this. Unthinkable that they would actually require people to get into school based on their merit. It's unthinkable to think that in America, that people will be judged judged based on what they produce. It's, he actually used the word unthinkable. I'm thinking about it now, and it's shocking to me that you should be granted access to something important based on the value that you produce. It's shocking. He said that his administration would direct the Department of Education to scrutinize how practices like legacy admissions, which expand privilege instead of opportunity. He's against legacy admissions for people who get into school. And look, I agree with him on that. And the minorities that are pissed off about this Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in colleges, they are 100% right. You're going to end letting people in based on the color of their skin, but you're going to continue to allow all these leftist shithole institutions, Harvard, Yale, Duke, whatever. They're letting people in based on how much money their parents have given or the fact that their legacies. The only reason they let the legacies in is because they want their money. The legacies are more likely to give money. That's how you get into college. If you give money, you get in. That's how it is. It's not a quid pro quo where it's laid out there, but that is how it is. Everybody knows it. So the minorities are pissed about that. And Joe Biden is pissed. No longer should people be getting in based on the fact that their parents went to the school or the fact that they give money or the fact that they're important. Joe Biden doesn't like that. Well, Hunter Biden attended Georgetown and then Yale Law School. If you read his writing in his laptop, he can barely speak and write the English language. He is a low-grade moron. Yet somehow he went to Georgetown and Yale Law School. How do you think he got in? You think it's merit? 
Hunter's never had a real job in his entire miserable, useless, addicted life. He's a thief. He's a crackhead. He had sex with his dead brother's wife and his dead brother's teenage daughter. He pays strippers to... um, Cover your ears, young people. He pays strippers to stick dildos up his ass inside a strip club. This is not me making this up. It's in the laptop. Don't blame me. I'm sorry that I have to say it. I got to say these ugly things. I don't want to say it. How the hell did Hunter Biden, a low IQ junkie crackhead sex addict, get into Georgetown and Yale? Privilege. Not even anything related to merit. He's a moron who can't spell two-syllable words. Sometimes he can't spell one-syllable words. I've read his emails. You can't possibly think that he could get into these places on merit. And if you're not sure, I want you to listen to this. Just a few years ago, Joe Biden berated the dean of the University of Pennsylvania, an Ivy League school, to get Hunter's idiot daughter in. A few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, Joe Biden attended this idiot granddaughter of his, her graduation from Penn, when he was he was a fake. Just recently, he said that legacy admissions should end, that it's not fair, that privilege admissions, based on how much money you have, how much you've donated, how important you are, that they have to end. Yet he attended that graduation and pretended like he was proud and the only reason his idiot granddaughter got in was because he was the vice president and he got her in he's so offended by people getting into schools because of money or power but he forgot again how Maisie biden Maisie, what the f- names their kid Maisie. Hunter's idiot daughter and a subpar student by all accounts somehow she got into the ivy league to Penn. It's all on Hunter's laptop. It's all there for you to read. There are these texts between Maisie, her dad, Hunter, her grandfather, Joe Biden. She applied to Penn on October 31, 2018 for early admission, just a few years ago. Two days later, two days later, she asks her father, Hunter, about the status of her application. Look, you apply for like an early decision. You don't find out for months. That's what it is. You find out like in January, this is October. When you applied to school, you don't find out the status of your application two days after you applied. You press submit, and then they tell you, okay, we've got all the materials. Bing, bang, boom. That's it. But these are special, privileged people who are getting things that they don't deserve. So she checks with her dad. It's been 48 hours. What the fuck am I getting into this school already? According to the text in the laptop in the months following her application to Penn, Hunter and Joe Biden mounted this full court press on Penn's administrators to get Maisie in. They took their case. They don't just go to the admissions. They don't go to the admissions office. They go right to the top. Penn's president, Amy Gutman. On December 31, 2008, excuse me, December 13, this is two and a half months after Maisie applied, Joe Biden texted Hunter that he was, quote, going to try to see President Gutman tomorrow. Two days later, Joe Biden told Hunter that he had a great talk with Gutman. Naturally, he misspelled Gutman because, you know, he's an idiot. Naturally, of course, you know, this is what he does. He's not, he's such a, a smart man that he can't even spell the name of the person that he's manipulating. Quote, Maisie's still in the game for regular acceptance. I guess they decided they knew by then that you hadn't gotten in early, so they just shift you to the pool of the regular admission if you don't get rejected. But must do well in class this period. It's real. Come on. Hunter Biden then tells his daughter the good news. You haven't been rejected, even though you're obviously the the fruit of my loins and I'm an idiot. So her chances of getting into Penn in the regular admission pool is like, I don't know, 3%, something like that. If you're a regular white person, 2% maybe. But when you're privileged like Maisie Biden and Joe Biden, you just get in because you're a Biden. But Hunter Biden said that his father, referring to Joe Biden, received from some advice from President Gutman. Maisie needed to get her grades up in her senior year. Now, apparently she had gotten lousy grades in grade 11 or junior year of high school, But again, obviously, that's not a problem when you're a Biden. But isn't it great that the president of the university you're applying to tells you what you need to do to get in? This is what Hunter wrote. Bottom line, quote, bottom line is that Gutman, of course, he misspelled Gutman again, made clear that in order for her 
referring to Gutman to explain the 11th grade. So now you've got the president of the university carrying your water for you for this kid, Maisie. You had to show improvement in the 12th, Hunter wrote, which is something I think we all would have liked to have known form, he misspelled, from the start. So Hunter is pissed that he's being told now by the university that her 11th grade grades were so bad that she needs to do better, at least at the beginning of 12th grade. And he's pissed that he wasn't told this beforehand. She's a horrible student. And yet he needs to be told that a horrible student needs to actually work a little bit her senior year of high school in order to fake getting in to Penn. He's pissed because he's so privileged. Everything is handed to him. He's angry that he wasn't told from the beginning, Maisie, just do good for a semester and we'll get you into the school. It's amazing. God forbid you have to make decent grades your senior year after a lousy junior year to get into one of the top 10 colleges in America. I mean, he needs to be told that? It wasn't obvious, apparently. Anyway, why do these people get all these breaks? Isn't Joe Biden a man of the people? What does he call himself? Amtrak Joe, Potato Joe? Drunken Joe, crackhead fathers, whatever, whatever. To any of you people that are of college age, did you get help from the university president that was pushing your application personally through admissions? In March of 2019, now we're getting to the end of it, Joe Biden told Hunter that he asked the university's dean of admissions about Maisie's application. So now he's gone to the president, now he's going to the dean of admissions. In that same conversation with Hunter, Joe Biden said that President Gutman would call him directly to let him know whether Maisie was accepted. Do you really have to wonder whether she was going to be accepted? Quote, if I hear before 1 p.m. on March 29, 2019, I'll call immediately so you can call Maisie, Joe Biden wrote. Let me know if there's anything I can do on anything. You can do something for me, Joe Biden. Kick your crackhead son out of the White House. Stop letting the illegals rush through our borders. Be competent. Stop stealing. Of course, Maisie Biden got into pen. Now, before the push to get Maisie Biden in, Joe Biden launched the Penn Biden Center at the university. This is a think tank. According to the website, the Penn Biden Center, quote, will have a significant impact on Penn's teaching and research missions and will be focused primarily on diplomacy, foreign policy, and national security. The university then raised over $1 billion in foreign funding after launching the Penn Biden Center. A lot of it Chinese money because all the foreigners want access to Biden. They want to get in, so they give money. And the university paid Joe Biden more than $900,000, even though he taught no regular classes at Penn and attended around a dozen ticketed events at the campus. That's it. nine hundred grand. That's good money if you can steal it, right? And by the way, Penn President Amy Gutman, who gave the, a spot to the class of 2000, I guess, 23 to Maisie Biden, even though she didn't deserve it. In July of 2021, President Joe Biden nominated Amy Gutman to serve as his ambassador to Germany, and she was confirmed. See how it works when you're privileged? You do something for me, I do something for you. That's all. Simple as that. But Joe Biden thinks it's unthinkable that people should be getting into universities based on merit. It's unthinkable. And he was going to put an end to legacy admissions because it's not right. It's too much privilege. Only people like Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Maisie Biden, and the rest of those inbred Irish freaks, they get to be privileged. The rest of us, we're just suckers. That's who we elected. P.S., by the way, the leftist colleges complaining about not being able to admit inferior minority candidates ahead of better qualified whites and Asians. They have no problem letting in the idiot children of famous people. For some reason, they don't care about the poor minorities then. Duke led in Rudy Giuliani's imbecilic son, that one with the red hair, that buffoon, that, that jackass. He ended up going to Duke and then suing them for kicking him off the golf team. Wonderful admission there, fellas. He's never had a real job in his life. Duke accepted Springsteen's kid, Ted Koppel's kid, Jerry Seinfeld's two kids, and recently Michael Strahan's kid. I'm sure they were all deeply qualified. Suffice it to say, Duke doesn't get any more money from me. Enough of them. They can get it from Rudy. They can get it from Springsteen. They're not getting it from me. No more. And, and I've given them a lot. 
probably more than I would say probably 99% of my graduating class uh, at Duke. No more. Go fuck yourselves. Now, in 1974, I go back because I want to see how deep the mental disturbances in this Biden tiny brain. In 1974, Joe Biden was then the youngest member of the Senate. He was 31. He did an interview with Kitty Kelly. She was a famous gossip columnist at the time. And this was after his first wife died in a car crash. Here are some excerpts from the interview. And you can find it online if you look. I think it's called Death and the All-American Boy. Put that into Google with Joe Biden. Bing, bang, boom. It's there. Quote, his wife's name was Nelia. Nelia. Quote, Nelia was my very best friend, my greatest ally, my sensuous lover. The longer we lived together, the more we enjoyed everything from sex to sports. Yes, I, I just, that was a quote he gave to a reporter. This is Joe Biden. Here's another one. Let me show you my favorite picture of her, he says, holding up a snapshot of Nelia in a bikini. Quote, she had the best body of any woman I ever saw. She looks better than a Playboy bunny, doesn't she? He, he actually said that to the press, the, the, the senator of the United States. Okay, this is not, again, this is not backstage at a Led Zeppelin show. This is the senator. There's only a hundred of them in America. Quote, my beautiful millionaire wife was a conservative Republican before she met me, but she changed her registration. At first, she didn't want me to run for Senate. We had such a beautiful thing going, and we knew all those stories about what politics can do to a marriage. She didn't want that to happen. At first, she stayed home with the kids while I campaigned, but that didn't work out because I'd come back too tired to talk to her. I might satisfy her in bed, but I didn't have much time for anything else. What the fuck is with this guy? Who talks like this? He is a senator who talks like this. Then in the same article, Biden tells a joke with an anti-Semitic punchline and asks that it be kept off the record. Well, dummy, the joke was kept off the record, but the fact that you told an anti-Semitic joke was in the article. A senator. This is the level of idiot we're dealing with. That's when his brains weren't scrambled. He was only 31. This is what we accept as normal. And another great line uh, Biden used in the article, quote, I am a family man, and I'd rather lose with my family than win without them. He's such a family man that he refuses to acknowledge that he has a seventh grandchild, a granddaughter named Navy Biden, the young daughter of the stripper that his crackhead son Hunter knocked up. Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge her. Hunter Biden refuses to acknowledge her and wouldn't let her use his last name. He can knock him up, but you can't use his name because his name is, is such gold. He's the father of this child. First, he denied paternity. Then he did all he could to fight child support. But forget Hunter. Joe Biden is a family man? And he won't acknowledge his granddaughter, telling everyone who asks that he has six grandkids and not seven? Listen. In all seriousness, and I hate Trump and, and Biden. I hate them both. So I'm not here as any kind of partisan voice. Would it kill him to accept this little girl? She's innocent. And she's the victim of his you know demonic crackhead son, Hunter. But she's still a human being. And by all accounts, she's a good kid. I mean, she's not snorting crack like every day like Hunter Biden is. Would it kill Jill Biden to accept her granddaughter? But they won't. You could just say, look, Hunter made a mistake. And when we're going to do the right thing, because it's the right thing, invite him to the White House. Think how much more humane, more human that would make Joe Biden. But they won't do it because they view the kid as a political liability. She's reduced to nothing, this kid, because she can't help Joe Biden win the next election. So tell me again he's a family man. And I'm going to tell you that you're a liar. All right? And... The way this country is being led, a recent poll of Americans revealed that we support the ending of affirmative action for college admissions by 20 percentage points. By 20 points, that's like a landslide. No one but a handful of people who are actually getting this handout that they don't deserve agree with affirmative action. And while I feel for the minority communities that don't have the ability to pay for tutors for the kids, and it's true. If you're poor, and oftentimes that is minorities more than white people applying for colleges, you are behind the eight ball. There's no question, because you're dealing, you're competing against kids that have every kind of advantage, and they're, they're paying for tutors and whatnot. 
Here's a tip that I would give you. Work doubly hard because if you get into a good school as a minority, everyone thinks the only way you got in is due to affirmative action. And you deserve better. You really do. Because there's tons of minorities that are really, really smart and people are always going to look at them like, yeah, sure, sure, sure you got in uh, based on your merit. And if you feel that your, your liberal politicians are more sensitive to you on this subject than perhaps I am or, or even Republicans are, remember, they get all their kids into these schools due to privilege, and I have had to work for everything I've ever gotten, as will my kids who coincidentally got 19 A's last year out of 20 classes that they took in college because they told me that the classes are filled with kids who don't belong in the school and the grading curve keeps on getting raised to ensure that they get A's every time just about. Similarly, a recent poll of Americans found that the great majority of us, 68%, oppose access to puberty-blocking medication for transgender children aged 10 to 14. And 58% of us oppose access to hormonal treatments for transgender kids ages 15 to 17. The country is deadly against this sort of stuff going on. A majority of adults surveyed in the poll, 57%, said a person's gender is determined by their sex assigned at birth. Okay, that is a significant majority. This is how America feels. Wake up. Both affirmative action and mutilating children to become trans are issues that our country agrees on as a whole. We're against both. Despite our country being so divided, it's like the one thing that we can agree upon. It's the freaks on the left who are pushing it. Similarly, we're a country that supports a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. I'm against abortion. I don't like it, but I certainly support a woman's right to choose even if I don't love it. I don't love it. You ever see what an abortion looks like? Uh, Google it. Google that too when you're when you're looking at uh, up Hunter Biden and Joe Biden stuff. You'll puke. But it's the far-right lunatics that oppose abortion, and no one else does. Now, I'm going to I guess I can take it. I guess I'll do a little bit right now. You want to take a break, you take a break. Put me on pause. But I want to talk about it and get the music. Come on, let's go. Music, get it going. Mayor Eric into Club Adams. It's a brief one, but I got to bring it up. I got to bring it up. Adams is the mushmouth mayor of New York City. And in his mushmouth voice of his, he insulted a woman who fled the Nazis as a child by calling her racist. He said she was racist. And also a plantation owner. She's white, obviously. All the woman did was point out that Adams is a liar, which he is. I mean, that's a fact. He'd been caught in a lie about the rent stabilization laws. And she called him out on it at some forum, public forum. And instead of responding, trying to uh, go to the merits of her accusation, he used the race card. And I want you to listen to this exchange. uh, But when you listen to it, just keep in mind how funny his voice is. He speaks English like literally like Mushmouth from Fat Albert, the cartoon. And he thinks that the word ask, ask, ask is actually axe. He's our mayor. He is our mayor of the biggest city in the world. But listen to this Mushmouth talk. Go ahead, Mr. Producer. This is the whole exchange. Okay, first, if you're going to ask a question, don't point at me and don't be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of this city and treat me with the respect I I deserve to be treated. I'm speaking to you as an adult. Don't stand in front like you're treating someone that's on the plantation that you own. Give me the respect I deserve and engage in the conversation up here in Washington Heights. Treat me with the same level of respect I treat you. So don't be pointing at me. Don't be disrespectful to me. Speak with me as an adult because I'm a grown man. I walked into this room as a grown man and I'm going to walk out of this room as a grown man. I answered your question. So the Holocaust survivor is actually racist. Who would have known? Naturally, when you 
are a big man in the club. You can never admit that you're wrong. So we just continued to claim that she was racist and never responded, responded to the lies of his that she had pointed out. Now, look, Eric Adams is a major liar. In, in, in Eric Adams' first month in office, he was confronted with the deaths of two New York City police officers who were responding to a domestic disturbance in Harlem. Adams, as you remember, is a former subway police captain who campaigned as a crime fighter. He he tried to exploit these killings for his own gain. The loss of the officers, he said, reminded him of the 1987 line of duty death of a friend of his, Officer Robert Venable. Quote, I still think about Robert. Now, you have to do this in very high pitch and mangle some words. I still think about Robert Adams said at a news conference at City Hall, I keep a picture of Robert in my wallet. Now, a week later, Adams posed for a portrait in his office, and he held up a wallet-sized photo of uh, Officer Venable after the New York Times had requested to see it. And you can find it online. He's showing this wrinkled, uh, squashed picture of Officer Venable. And he's repeated this really, you know, moving uh, anecdote in media interviews and at a police academy ceremony you know, recently. And he again displayed Officer Venable's picture. There's only one problem. It's a lie. The weathered photo of Officer Venable had not spent decades in the mayor's wallet. It had been created by employees in the mayor's office in the days after Adams claimed to have been carrying it in his wallet. How do we know? Well, the employees said so. They didn't want to be named. They were instructed to create a photo of Officer Venable the picture, of an, uh, the picture of the officer was found on Google. It was printed in black and white and made to look worn as if the mayor had been carrying it around for decades, they, including splashing some coffee on it, said the person who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of retribution. Two former City Hall aides who asked not to be identified said they were informed about the manipulated photo last year, not long after it was created. How utterly sick is this? This is what Eric Adams is. And he gets caught in lies all the time, you know, mainly because he's a liar. He told a story in 2019 at a commencement address of a black uh, college in Brooklyn. He uh, talked about how a neighbor's dog kept pooping on his lawn. And no matter how many, how polite he was to the owner, no matter how his standing as Brooklyn's borough president at the time, no matter how important he was, uh, a pastor gave him an idea. Adams slipped on a hoodie and Timberland boots so he could look thuggish, I guess, rang the neighbor's doorbell and reintroduced himself a little less politely, he said. After that, the dog stayed away. Quote, let people know you are not the one to mess with, he advised the, the graduating class at Medgar Evers College. He closed with a prediction for those who said he would never be mayor. I'm going to put on my hoodie and I'm going to make it happen. Only one problem. It was a complete lie. It was the pastor who had actually had the neighbor with the dog that pooped on his lawn and then had the confrontation at the door. Both Adams and the pastor admitted to it. Adams just liked how it sounded. It was a great story, I heard, he said. I, I heard him preach, and I told him, I'm going to tell that story. So Adams is like, uh, is like remember when Kramer and Seinfeld uh, sold his life stories to Jay Peterman? That's what Adams is. He just buys story. He doesn't pay, of course, because he's in the club mayor. And he just grabbed the story from somebody else, and he said it was his. I mean, he's lied about being shot at. He lied about where he uh, lived in Brooklyn when he was Brooklyn Borough President. He didn't register his rental property in Bed-Stuy with the city as required. He failed to report rental income to the federal government. And he blamed his accountant, who Adams said last year he had difficulty finding because his accountant was living in a homeless shelter. I know that my accountant, Moisha Feinbaum, I think his name is, he often uh, lives in a homeless shelter. This is the kind of bullshit that we're now dealing with in our society. This is what's acceptable from today's elected officials. Just lie your ass off about everything and never admit when you're caught. Now, after this break, I'm going to really, I'm going to drill down here and tell you when the world really fell apart. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back. I'm going to talk about when the world really fell apart. When did everything in America turn to shit? Not just our institutions, but our, our collective attitudes. 
our country has undergone a real significant mental decay. When did people start having less respect for themselves, for important institutions, for the truth, for hard work? Now, look, I'm not some old guy telling you to get off my lawn. Exceedingly immature. I have the same interests that I had when I was five years old. I'm not exactly some old uh, person stuck in the mud. I think anyone who knows me would admit that I can converse with anyone of any age about anything. I think my podcast would reveal that. So when I ask these questions about the decay of society, I, I think I ask them in good faith, not as some curmudgeon, all right? But when did we as a society decide that hard work was something to be avoided? That sacrifice in order to succeed was a sucker's bet? When did we become a society where grifting and lying was more desired than actual hard work? It's clear when it happened. The advent of social media. The obsession with one's online persona, where people spend all day with their phones in their hands looking at them instead of actually living. There was a time when young people actually experienced life instead, instead of living in other people's lives on their phone. And, and a lot of other societal ills came about during this time period. I'm talking about the, the craze uh, trans stuff, and I'm not talking about regular trans people. I'm talking about the over-the-line shit, you know, where their uh, insistence that our military become diverse with trans people, where pride flags are more important than American flags, even at the White House, Biden's White House, you know, where women, men that are now women, are competing against women in, in sports and kicking the crap out of them. I mean, when did this become normal? The BLM movement, which in theory is, is great, black lives do matter, but was then revealed to be run by thieves and frauds and nobody said anything. It just, that's okay. I don't know if it's a coincidence. It seems that maybe it's not the social media and all the insanity of the world, but it's fully spread to the legal field that I'm in. And I've talked about this briefly. I've touched upon this in the past. I mean, our field is where lies by lawyers are the norm. I'm not talking about in the courtroom. Because, you know, as a defense lawyer, you're allowed to push any theory, however ridiculous, if there's even a kernel of, of, of truth or fact in the evidence. I'm talking about lawyers just talking about themselves. And this is how it hit me when the world fell apart. It began with the cell phone and then the internet, which eventually, as I said, led to social media. Suddenly, completely average people could pretend they were someone because they could have an online public persona. They could boost their importance. Every time they did something even remotely positive, they'd lie and make it 20 times greater. People became so narcissistic about finally getting some public acclaim that they even had to show pictures of their food to everyone. I mean, nothing was exempt. Nothing too small needed to be kept private. Because when you can never get any public acclaim before the internet, before social media, you just wanted to be famous, but you couldn't because it required you to actually having to work and be successful and accomplish something. And, and lawyers didn't want to work to become successful and get cases the way it used to be. That's what happened with the advent of social media. Why work hard and become successful and get cases when you can just lie online? Now that you know, would-be clients are looking for lawyers online, going to Google, instead of hiring lawyers from referrals from friends who had good experiences with lawyers or hiring lawyers that you read about in the newspaper for winning cases, now you just can lie your ass off, get your website at the top of Google searches, and you can say whatever the hell it is you want. When I was a younger lawyer, the only way to get cases to get good publicity was to win. And to do so, you had to work your ass off. So as a young lawyer, I worked seven days a week, not only to impress my boss, both bosses that I had before I went out on my own, but to impress the clients who I had hoped would refer cases to me. There was no other way back then. There was no social media. You couldn't fabricate a profile for online. And I didn't want it any other way. I wanted to do it that way. Again, think about it. Before the internet, how would you find a criminal lawyer if you'd been arrested or believed you were under investigation? You'd either ask your friends who had the misfortune of needing a criminal lawyer, and perhaps they'd recommend a lawyer, or you'd know about big cases that were featured in the media where the defendant was acquitted. And I've told you this story before, but I recall asking Jerry Shargell, my, my second boss and certainly the most influential lawyer in my, my life, I asked him way back then, when, 
years ago when I just started out on my own, how do you get into the press? How do you get the good publicity? He said, simple. You don't pay a, uh, uh, any kind of PR person. You win cases. And he was right. That's it. You can pay a PR person. You can get on TV, some stupid show. But until you start winning cases, nobody's going to write great things about you in the media. Nowadays, I mean, things have changed. Young lawyers can't possibly imagine having to actually learn how to defend the case properly. You win some and get the word of mouth started. Lawyers now think that hustling, like working hard, it's not working hard and learning. It's fabricating accomplishments to advertise about yourself online, tricking the public. The hope of snagging like unsuspecting clients who actually think you're more competent than you are. They'll put keywords hidden in the codes of websites, you know, all like greatest lawyer in the world, greatest lawyer in New York, greatest lawyer since Jesus was nailed on the cross with the hope that Google will catch those words when you do a Google search and you'll get thrust to the top of the searches, best lawyer, stuff like that. And I find it just incredible to me. I grew up working for Jerry Shargell, who was just the most fantastic lawyer, and I never wanted to take any credit that I didn't deserve, even when I deserved some. That's how things were back then. I would write legal briefs and not put my name on them half the time. I wanted to earn my success, and I knew that if I worked harder than everybody else, I'd become successful. I didn't want to take credit when it was Jerry's case. I was helping him. He was doing all the heavy lifting. Let him get the credit. I don't want my name anywhere near it. I just knew that I had to work harder. New York has like 200,000 lawyers. It's the most dense lawyer state, the most lawyers in any place in America. So I knew I had my work cut out for me, but I also knew that I could do it. I started with nothing, no connections, couldn't get any job with any help. I just worked. And 15 years after graduating law school, I was trying and winning the John Gotti Jr. case in federal court. There was no shortcuts for me. I just outworked everybody. How else can someone with no connection in the field rise to the top by outworking everyone else and learning along the way? Nowadays, this is old thinking. Why become a good lawyer when you can just cut out all the hard work and and lie about being a good lawyer? It's utterly repulsive to any top lawyer in New York City, this mentality, I can tell you. We all laugh about it, but the joke is really on the community of people who need lawyers. Because the natural act is to use now is to use Google to find a lawyer sometimes, use a search engine. Most of the time, anyone with a majorly serious criminal case is not going to bother with Google. They know of real lawyers or uh, they've used the real lawyers in the past. But the young lawyer who is tricking members of the public, they're going to catch unsuspecting people without the savvy of knowing who is good and who isn't good. Because it's one thing to read about somebody online, but then you got to start peeling back and finding out the cases. Well, they said they did this in the case. Well, you have to actually find the case online. There are places and find out what was really done. You know, I have a young lawyer I once read wrote, argued and won a bail motion for a fraud case in federal court. It was a miracle, blah, blah. I just looked up the case. Took me two minutes on Pacer. That's a legal website. Bail was consented to by the federal prosecutor. So there was no argument. He just consented. It was a a, a fraud case and they let people out on bail unless it's a very large, large fraud. But most of the cases out there are smallish cases. Most of them aren't big cases. So you can have these, uh, these grifting lawyers fooling a lot of people for relatively small fees. And that's how they earn their living without even knowing what they're doing. Not many people who are looking for a lawyer are understanding enough of the system to check out what a lawyer says about himself to see if it's, if it's true. And you can say anything online. The New York state bar doesn't seem to patrol the websites of lawyers. They should, but they don't. So people hire lawyers thinking they're hiring someone. And I'm going to, I'm literally going to read this, who claims to be, quote, one of the of New York City's most prominent criminal defense lawyers. I'm quoting from a website of a young lawyer who graduated law school in 2015, which means he's been a member of the bar since 2016. That's seven years ago. And this lawyer apparently spent a few years as a state prosecutor, which means he's been a defense lawyer for what, like three years, four years, maybe. What can you possibly accomplish in three or four years as a defense lawyer to the point that you can state honestly that you are, as described in your website, considered 
one of the top federal and state criminal defense lawyers in New York City after being a defense lawyer for three or four years. It's a lie. No one considers such a lawyer as anything even remotely close to it. And it's not like we're selling muffins. We're dealing with people charged with crimes who could lose their liberty, their freedom. Don't we owe it to ensure that these people get competent legal counsel? Or at least get a fair shake in determining the best lawyer for their needs? Maybe the lawyer's competent, but shouldn't they, the client get to decide on their own and not be lied to? Or should we just compound their misery of being arrested like the worst day of their lives with making them run the gauntlet of internet advertising where every lawyer lies about what they've done? I mean, that's some pretty nasty shit here. And I came late to the world of attorney advertising. I didn't have a website until I was well into my practice, obviously. And it was after there were, you know, online lawyer advertisements and websites. I just didn't think I needed it. After I had won some major cases, I was careful then that made a website. And I was careful to put in only accurate descriptions of what I had actually done and not lie. Because what if I got caught? How bad could that be? I'd look like an idiot. And I didn't have to make up any lies because I had actually done decades of defense work by then. I went out on my own in 1999 after working for Jerry Shargell for years and second seating him in a dozen major trials, federal and state. I had learned, learned a ton by then. By the time I had left Jerry, I had many of my own clients while I was working for him. I had won stuff on my own for clients who had hired me. I wasn't just doing stuff where I was helping Jerry. I was helping him a little bit, and I was also doing my own practice that was growing. It wasn't just the cases that Jerry had handed to me because the clients couldn't afford him. I had my own reputation by that time. Every last thing on my website is actual work that I have done myself, not what Jerry did. And when I first put up my website, I didn't list a single case that existed when I worked for Jerry where I was working on his cases. Just my own. Because otherwise, I'd just be pretending to take credit for cases that I was simply helping on, not being the guy in the first seat who's doing all the major work. And it's pathetic, honestly, that you do such a thing. I didn't lie and claim that Jerry's accomplishments were my own. I didn't do it, first of all, because... Jerry would eventually see the website. He was like my father and he cared about me and he would, he'd be disappointed in me and think that I was a, a grifter. And I didn't want the, the clients who would, we had worked together on case to see it because they would feel the same thing and it, it would be humiliating. Who would be so lame to do such a thing? Second of all, it's actually fake advertising and I had to assume that there'd be a penalty for it and apparently guess what? There's not. So I'm going to tell you a story. The lawyer who had been practicing as a defense lawyer for three or four years that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago where he said he was, I don't know, the greatest lawyer in New York City or one of the top ones, that's my former associate. I was in the process of replacing him when he presumably got wind of it and left on his own to open up his own practice, which is, is fine. Do what you want. You have my blessing, uh, especially since I had already hired a headhunter to replace him. You know, so what am I going to do? I thought it was misguided, but it wasn't like I was keeping him around. I wasn't. Why did I need to do it? He was almost completely unresponsive on the weekends. I text you on the weekend. You're working for me. You better respond because I'm not texting you to ask you what you're doing on a Sunday. I'm texting you because we got work and it's an emergency. You ignore me, you get fired. I mean, it's as simple as that. Clients were uh, complaining about him one after another. So after he left, I mean, this is, this is a true story, and it's, it pains me. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a link to a podcast, and he says, you have to listen to this. It's just not to be believed. And I did. It was a podcast about some criminal issues, but the host advertised the podcast. He was interviewing my former associate. I don't even know if he was my associate at the time. He advertised him as the lawyer for El Chapo, which was interesting to me because I had hired this associate after the Chapo trial. He never worked on the Chapo case or even met Chapo. I allowed him to come to Chapo sentencing, and he stood in the crowd of people behind me as I addressed the press. Naturally, during the podcast, he starts talking about Chapo as if he represented him. Never corrected the podcast host who referred to him as uh, Chapo's lawyer. He just kept right at it, pretending to be Chapo's lawyer. And I was frankly stunned. And I'm thinking, is this guy like out of his mind? He had left the state DA's office and come to me, maybe worked as a defense lawyer for two years at the time he left my office, and he's representing Chapo now. It, it just completely freaked me out. He was actually a district, an assistant district attorney at the time of the trial. 
So I figured if someone is willing to so easily lie about their accomplishments publicly about one of my clients, there has to be plenty more lies if I simply just bothered to look. And naturally, the website that I was quoting from a minute ago, the 2015 law school grad who, despite working in the DA's office after law school for a few years and then being a defense lawyer for two or three years, again, that's my former associate who wasn't responsive on the weekends and now claims he's considered one of the top federal and state criminal defense lawyers in New York City. What's not mentioned on his website that I I believe as a defense lawyer, he's never tried a felony case. So his claim on his website that he, quote, prides himself on taking any case to trial where many, that could be true. He could be willing to take any case to trial, any case to trial, but where he says where many clients have been acquitted is an absolute lie. That's false. That's actionable. That's a lie. A flat out lie. And it's, it's really grotesque. I think he's tried one criminal case as a defense lawyer in his life. It was a low level misdemeanor, attempted criminal mischief a bench trial, which means it was a judge, not even a jury, and his client was convicted. Does that experience sound like someone who is now one of the, quote, one of New York City's most prominent criminal defense lawyers who has, quote, tried over 25 cases to verdict? Can someone who has never tried a federal criminal case really be, and I am quoting, quote, regarded as one of the top criminal, federal criminal defense lawyers in New York City? No. So it's a bit nauseating for me to have to read my name on his website, which he clearly put in to establish some real experience and bona fides working for me. Toss my name in and people think that he's actually got some experience, except he never tried a case with me. I don't know if I ever did a hearing with him. I don't believe I did, but I know that he slept a lot on the weekends. And naturally on his website where he touts his many accomplishments. He uses cases he worked in while at my office, my clients, stuff that I did. He even links articles in the media about the cases which mention me and not him and says, you know, these are the cases that he worked on. Can can you guess why? It's because I was the lawyer and not him. That's why my name is in the articles. One such case is the 14-year-old boy, Rashawn Weaver, who I represented pro bono, who was charged with stabbing to death the Barnard College freshman, Tessa Majors. On my former associate's website, he touts his involvement in the case as, quote, secured sentence below the maximum for Rashawn Weaver, despite government's request. Well, in order to secure that sentence, which I did, that was the result of a three-hour argument with the judge and two prosecutors on a Zoom appearance during the pandemic. I remember it because I did it from D.C. the night before Emma Coronel, Chapo's wife, was pleading guilty in her case. My former associate was not even on the Zoom call. It was me by myself. Yeah. And another result attributed to him, quote, bail granted over government's objection for Olympic figure skater charged with multi-million dollar wire fraud. My case, my result, I told him what the argument was for bail. The client was a foreign national, a former Olympic speed, excuse me, speed skater from Slovenia. He had no contacts with the United States at all. Somehow I got him bail, wasn't a citizen. My associate wrote a two-page letter. I told him exactly what to write. Somehow he did that work. I did an hour-long argument to get the bail. I won the bail. My associate didn't say a word. I don't even know if he was there. Here's another one. Quote, secured six-month jail sentence for real estate executive convicted of manslaughter related to a fatal car crash in upstate New York. I did a podcast on this case. A client who was driving under the influence with a girlfriend in the passenger seat got into a horrible accident at high speed, and the girlfriend was nearly decapitated. I thought up the defense. I presented it to the prosecutor. I negotiated a plea offer, and I was the one who had to argue with the judge to get the six-month sentence, of which he only served four months. It was a remarkable result. This was especially tough because it was in upstate New York and not in New York City where prosecutors are a little more, they give a little more leeway. Upstate New York, very conservative, and getting four months served on a case like this was a miracle. He was initially offered five years when I came into the case for a lawyer who had the case for years. I got it down to four months. Any of the work that mattered in that case was done by me. Another great result, if you can call it that on his website, quote, represented New Jersey Instagram influencer charged with federal and state crimes related to multi-million dollar cryptocurrency scheme and kidnapping. My client, I had my associate act as local counsel in New Jersey for the case because I'm not a New Jersey lawyer. He never spoke to the prosecutor. I'm not sure he ever even spoke to the defendant. 
Certainly never spoke to the judge. Last one. Quote, represented individual charged with defrauding professional sports leagues and multi-million dollar computer crimes and extortion scheme. Of course, it's my case. Uh, the client couldn't afford me, so I put my former associate on it. When he left to start his own firm, I tried to put another lawyer in my firm to take over the case because nothing had happened yet. But the client initially balked and, and said, I'm gonna, I was about to hire a different firm because I couldn't work with your former associate. He was too dishonest. I was about to fire your firm. He was dishonest and he wasn't a good lawyer. I had to smooth it over. I put in a better lawyer to take the spot and uh, he handled the case to the client's satisfaction to the end. No harm, no foul, thank God. Not everyone could be made happy, however. In other cases my, that my former associate was handling for my firm, I received numerous complaints after he left that he was dishonest with some of the complaints. I had to give fees back in some of these cases, and one resulted in a complaint to the New York Bar for a case in which I never even spoke to this client. My former associate had handled all of it. Can you imagine that anybody would think that this lawyer is dishonest after looking at his website, a guy who had never tried a criminal case as a defense lawyer before a jury, any kind of real criminal case, claiming that he's one of the top defense lawyers in New York City, who falsely claimed that he tried 25 cases to verdict as a defense lawyer? That's what it insinuates who claims, quote, at his core, he relates to juries and prides himself on taking any case to trial where many clients have been acquitted. It's just, just fucking gross. No one wants to do the work anymore. They'd rather grift and lie. As I said earlier, why would this lawyer risk the chance that anyone would find out about the lies? Why risk the chance that I would find out that you lied about your work with me? Do you think I'd ever give this person any work in the future or say a positive thing about them? Or if people ask me about them, I'm going to tell the truth instead. And do you actually think my opinion means nothing in this profession? Spoiler alert, my opinion means a hell of a lot. So this is a tip for any young people or young lawyers who are listening or any people, period. There are no shortcuts in this life. It all comes out in the wash. Faking your accomplishments is not the way to get anyone's respect. There are still a lot of us out here who were trained by the giants. We know what you're doing. We see it and we're puking. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me at beyondthelegallimit.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Please give the podcast a rating. It'll show up easier and then everybody will think I'm one of the most brilliant defense lawyers in New York City. But email me if you have any questions. I appreciate it. See you next week.